0: Well, we're thinking about wealth uh, this evening and related issues of greed and what our use of money says about us. We might say money talks. There is a challenge, though, as we come to this. We tend not to think of ourselves as wealthy. Yet on a whole world scale, we are in the top few percentage in terms of wealth. But for us, it's all relative. And if there is the sin of greed at root in our hearts we likely won't recognize it. Uh, Tim Keller, who died a few weeks ago, American uh, Presbyterian minister uh, in New York, uh, gives an insight into why that is in one of, the, one of his books. He says this, Why can't anyone in the grip of greed see it? The counterfeit god of money uses powerful sociological and psychological dynamics. Everyone tends to live in a particular socioeconomic bracket, Once you're able to afford to live in a particular neighborhood, send your children to its schools and participate in its social life, you will find yourself surrounded by quite a number of people who have more money than you. You don't compare yourself to the rest of the world, you compare yourself to the people in your brackets. The human heart always wants to justify itself and this is one of the easiest ways. You say, I don't live as well as him or her or them. My means are modest compared to theirs. You can reason and think like that no matter how lavishly you are living. Jesus warns people far more often about greed than about sex. In a previous chapter in the book, he had talked about some of the issues and problems around sex. Yet almost no one thinks they are guilty of greed. Therefore, we should all begin with a working hypothesis that this actually easily could be a problem for me. And that's something we need to bear in mind as we come to consider uh, who and what James addresses in our verses this evening. In terms of where we are in the book, uh, if you remember, uh, if you look back there, chapter 4, verse 10, we have that command with the promise issued, humble yourselves before the Lord." and he will exalt you. And so our passage, again, comes in the context of the Christian's call to a humble life, following in the footsteps of our Savior who humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And this death secures our blood-bought salvation, which causes us to joyously respond in self-denial and daily cross-bearing in our following of Jesus. So it's a call to a humble life, Uh, In many ways, the rest of James, it fleshes out what this humble life looks like in practice. 4, 11, and 12 revisits that theme from the beginning of chapter 3, showing us the speech of a humble person. Last time we looked at the diary of a humble person, 4, 13 to 17, and next time, if there is a next time, subject to negotiations, uh, we'll consider the suffering of the humble person. But this evening, in James 5, 1 to 6, it's the wallet of a humble person, or maybe the bank account of a humble person. But again, James introduces this by painting the picture of the opposite, the proud person with the thick wallet who has indulged himself or herself, maybe it was a person in that case, with no concern for those around them. What's yours is mine, what's mine is my own. James 5.1 comes across as harsh, And it is, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. We have to actually stop and ask, who is he speaking to? Yes, obviously it says he's speaking to the rich, but we have to sort of stop and ask, well, is he talking to the Christian rich person or the non-Christian? Throughout the letter, he's addressed the big problem in his readers as those who are double-minded, those whose hearts are divided, who in one breath have a love for the Lord, but whose eyes are hankering after the shiny trinkets that this world has to offer. Hearts and minds that come to expression, blessing God, and the very next minute turning to curse people made in God's image. But in all this, he has been addressing those in the church. He says, my brothers, or my dear brothers. And even in four, with that stern language, when he says, you adulterous people, he follows that up with grace to the humble, saying, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And as with the majority of Scripture, it is given to God's people as God breathed and profitable for us. So I should say, all Scripture is given uh, to all God's people. Uh, and yet, here it seems like James has honed in on the non Christian. The passage begins, Come now. As I say, it connects that to the last one, but there doesn't seem to be the same offer of hope for those addressed. Instead we read, come now you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. And so this comes not so much as an admonition, a telling off, I say come on back, I want to warn you, so much as a denunciation. James is not telling them what they should do, instead he's foretelling what will happen. Be done to them. It seems a bit strange. We wonder why. Well, we will come back to that, but first let's look uh, at some of the detail. Uh, verse 1 You rich, we might say today there are legitimate ways to become wealthy, uh, just as there were in the first century. However, often when the biblical writers speak of wealth and of someone being rich, they are speaking not just of their financial status but of their moral status. For instance, think of that well-known little man Zacchaeus in Luke 19. We're told he's the chief tax collector and was rich. We discover he's rich through corruption and exploitation, as is the case here. The rich James speaks of are so because they have failed to pay their workers as they should have. And even back in James 2.6, it alludes to them the rich dragging the poor into court, you rich people. He's not simply threatening rich people, but those who are described afterwards uh, as worldly rich people. Look at verse 5, those who in a sense are drowned in pleasures, puffed up with pride, worldly, wicked, and oppressive. And though he has the rich, worldly, non-Christian in his sights here, if we widened out the lens, we might see that the threat equally applies not only to those who abuse their wealth, But also to those who abuse their greatness, their public position, their authority, or any power. And they're told that they're going to weep and howl, howling like a wolf in grief and torment. Why? For the miseries that are coming upon you. And it's not in case misery comes upon you, but because it comes upon you, so sure will it be. Look at verse two. Though it is still future, we can read, your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded. James is telling us there is judgment to come on the selfish, greedy sinner who oppresses God's people. But in the meantime, they're going about their business, oblivious to this fact, our last passage reminded us that life is a mist, that our tomorrow isn't guaranteed. Meanwhile, some are fattening themselves, not knowing what tomorrow will bring. I suppose the greatest picture we have of this is the humble turkey. I'm not sure if there's any farmers here who maybe have a few turkeys and they lead eat up to, to Christmas. I know we probably all eat turkey at Christmas, and I suppose that's the point. Uh, the turkey is out in the field or in the shed come October, November thinking, this is great, I'm getting well-fed, and as time goes on, there's more and more food coming, and the turkey's thinking, this is is heaven, this is great. But then, as you know, come the end of December, come the beginning of January, the, the fields are empty, the sheds are empty, and the turkeys are gone. That's what James is sort of alluding to here. It's actually language that was in Psalm 73 that we read earlier about the rich fattening themselves. And verse 2 and 3 here allude uh, to these worldly riches, selfish accumulation of wealth. To James' readers, uh, they would have easily understood the problem wealth poses, the issue of greed. However, sometimes in our context, it's maybe a bit different. The amassing of wealth in our day is usually not only condoned, but admired. We think of the Forbes rich list in society, the top, who's the richest man in the world, Uh, and maybe on a smaller scale, I don't think the richest, uh, any of the top 100 richest are anywhere near Northern Ireland, but uh, we seem to admire uh, the wealth that people can acquire. Money talks, and some show off their wealth, maybe in fancy cars, in electric gates, in big lion sculptures, on the gateposts of a big house, and some are impressed to see this sort of thing. Now, let me be clear, James and Scripture as a whole is not against making money or making people feel guilty for making money. Some have tried to make out that that's the case. There's a famous book that came out in the late 1970s called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, but there's probably questionable interaction with Scripture in that book. Uh, there was a response came out after it uh, with a, a sort of a, a title, it was Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger and the response book was called Productive Christians in an Age of Guilt Manipulators. So we need to be careful how we uh, interpret Scripture and not just try to look for verses that support uh, our view. But rather than just talking about books... Even if we just look at our passage before us, the passage even last time, verse 13, on the face of it looks like James is critiquing those who want to make a profit. But in context, that is not the issue for him. Those he brings up are people who make their plans with proud presumption, with an arrogant attitude about their own prospects and about the future. They're proud and arrogant because their plans are made without reference to God. They live as if there is no God or even as if God is dead. And you don't have to be in business to live like this. Any of us can live in this double-minded way, a sort of practical atheist where we profess to believe in God, and yet this has no bearing on all the plans that we make. And so it could be any of us. And in verse 13, James just happens to use someone in business as an example. He's not rebuking Uh, those merchants for their plans, or even for their desire to make a profit. It's not their occupation, but their attitude that is the problem, the arrogant attitude that they have. Uh, And again, back in in James 5, 1 to 6, again, it's not simply the rich full stop. Uh, There's a number of charges James levels against the rich in this passage. Uh, There's four, uh, and they run like this. The first one, you can see in verses 2 and 3, they have selfishly hoarded wealth, The second charge, verse 4, they have defrauded their workers. The third charge, verse 5, they have a self-indulgent lifestyle. And the fourth charge, verse 6, they oppress the righteous, even murder. These are the charges brought against these ungodly rich. And it might be helpful, though, instead of just thinking about that, to think, well, we're supposed to be thinking about the humble believer, the wallet of a humble person. So maybe let's uh, take a different angle and uh, think about what that might look like. Uh, what, what should the, the wallet of a humble believer look like? And that's humble as in attitude or character rather than financial means. Uh, I think if you can make money uh, in a legitimate way, and I think scripture would say that, you know, make as much as you can, But then how does the use of money characterize a humble believer, whether their income is small or or large? It's not just about living simply, living frugally, to say, look at me, look, I'm wearing threadbare clothes or whatever like that. That's not the point. The point is uh, the humble believer lives sacrificially, lives generously, uh, lives with gratitude, lives to invest not only our financial resources, but our time, our talent to bless others, to bring life, and to multiply the gospel, to have our treasures in heaven, not hoarded in our bank accounts. I can think of uh, two men who had a big influence in my life um, uh, in years gone by, uh, one growing up, uh, probably one of the wealthiest men in Northern Ireland at the time. And uh, I used to go around when I was 18 years old to his house. He did have a nice house, though it wasn't the nicest Uh, on the street that he lived on and I used to go around to his house for a Bible study and his Bible was held together with duct tape and was covered in highlighter Uh, and this was a man who yes made big business decisions, lots of money coming in, lots of deals to be made and yet he invested his time not only in young men like myself but in others. Uh, He set up a charitable trust fund and supported individuals, I received support at uh, a couple of times, uh, and others as well, organizations seeking to, to bring Christian uh, ministry uh, to, to the forefront. I can think of another man uh, from time in Belfast when I lived there. Uh, he, had a, he had been the chief executive of a, a very large organization in Belfast with millions and millions of pound budget in a year, with thousands of staff, uh, and he had recently retired and uh, he had joined the church that I was part of. It was a smaller Presbyterian church. He had previously been part of the, the bigger congregation up the road, but in his retirement, he wanted to uh, be of service and of encouragement. And so he, he transferred church and he got himself stuck in and involved in every aspect in the life of that church. He was there morning and evening on Sundays. He met with me uh, and met with others. He didn't stay around too long after Sunday evening. There was tea and coffee there as well because he was going off to uh, be part of a Bible study with former Republican paramilitaries. Here was a man, very wealthy. He did have a nice car, although more often than not, he took the bus to get back and forwards around Belfast. And a couple of occasions, a dinner with him, he took me out once, it was a very nice restaurant in Belfast, and then one other time he invited me to his house for dinner. He was a bachelor, he had never married, and I thought, I'm going to this guy's house. And in some ways I was sort of thinking... You know this guy chief former chief executive you know wonder what his house is going to be like and i was struck when i went in to see his house it looked like it had been decorated in the 1970s and hadn't been touched since and to me it just uh, again showed me that this was a man very wealthy and yet had invested not only his money but his time in others seeking to serve the lord with a clear uh, faith in the lord jesus christ That's just two examples from my own life. I'm sure you know people uh, in your experience who have been very generous, but it's not just applicable for the very wealthy by our standards, but for all of us. How can we live thankful, sacrificial, generous lives, recognizing God has given us so much, no matter what we have, and that we are just stewards passing stuff on? I can think of, uh, well, Someone I don't know too well, although you did come up uh, one Sunday evening uh, to visit with us. And the minister who was preaching that evening, uh, I don't think he's on a big uh, big stipend as, as a minister. And he was with me, and I happen to be, if anyone knows me, I like my coffee. I like good coffee. And he had been around at the months uh, before the service, and it seems he's very into coffee as well. And uh, we were talking, and then anyway, he was there and he preached and he went away. I don't really know him that much. And then in the post, a couple of days later, received this thing and I didn't know what it was initially but it was something that was going to make my coffee making experience better and I'm just thinking this guy hardly knows me I didn't ask for anything and he was just just a very small act of kindness and generosity David Gibson in his uh, book on GM says what we do with money and don't do preaches visible sermons to the world around us what we do with money And don't do, preaches visible sermons to the world around us. Now, with those examples, I imagine some might have questions. You might be thinking, well, what do you want us to do? Do you want us to throw away our riches, to give it all away? Well, answer, no, but a few things. Maybe there's a call to prize them less. Whatever riches or wealth you have, prize them less. When you possess them, Do not let them possess you. Remember, it's not money that's the root of all evil, all kinds of evil, but the love of money. Secondly, we can do more good with what we have. Uh, We can use worldly wealth to gain friends for ourselves. Uh, Luke Luke 16 says that. Uh, Thinking about wealth, wealth can be the occasion for sin. It can lead to greed, but instead we want to Turn it to a good thing. Do good with what we have. Prize it less. Do more good with it. And actually we need to then seek God all the more earnestly for grace. Because when you are full, when you have lots, you need more grace. If you've got your Bible open and you turn to Deuteronomy 6, just after those great words from the Shema, uh, we have uh, these verses uh, to Israel. In Deuteronomy 6, 11 or 10, it says, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt." out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve. By his name you shall swear. There's a sense there when we have lots, we become a little bit self-sufficient. And so we actually, when we have wealth, we need to pray and ask that God would help us to manage that well. We think of not only in Deuteronomy and the New Testament, Jesus and Luke 18, the, the rich young ruler, he says how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of heaven. Easier for the camel to go through the eye of the needle. The disciples respond saying, well, who then can be saved? Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. It is not absolutely impossible for a rich person to go to heaven. We see that in Luke 19, the very next chapter, when we have salvation, come to Zacchaeus, a rich man's house. We think also in Luke, Luke spends a lot of time on the rich. We think of poor Lazarus who rests in the arms of Abraham, who... Genesis was very rich in this world's terms. There are some rich in heaven but it is oh so difficult and so pray for God's help when you have wealth to loosen your heart on the attachments of this world. There's a number of traits there that might be evident in the life of the humble believer, those who prize, uh, don't prize their wealth, Um, those who are not possessed by it, those who do good with it, those who uh, pray and ask that God would help them as they have means. But let's get back to consider that question of why is James, in a sense, uh, letting us as believers listen in to what he's forcefully saying to the non-Christians that punishment awaits and they will weep and howl at it? Because that's what's described in James 5, 1 to 6, in contrast to the humble believer. Well, in God's kindness, sometimes He wants us to listen in on what He says to others, a bit like the words of the Old Testament prophets who sometimes denounce the pagan nations around them, and but they deliver the words to God's people. I'm preaching through Obadiah at the minute in my congregation And that's the case there. It's a message for God's people. And yet it begins the vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord concerning Edom. It's likely the Edomites weren't the readers of this. Instead, it would have been and continues to be read by God's people, just as James 5 is. And again, this is where David Gibson in his his book is is so helpful in, in the understanding of this. It's an important observation, he says, for it raises the question, why address people who aren't even in the room? Why go to all this trouble to send a deadly arrow through the air if it will not reach its target? For the rich aren't listening to this. They're on their yachts in Monaco. Come now, you rich, can you hear this? Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Well, of course they can't hear, for they're rubbing on the sun cream. So why has James turned up the rhetorical heat? I think it's because he knows we are sitting in church, but boy, we'd love to be in Monaco, wouldn't we? Wouldn't you? James knows the human heart, skillful soul doctor that he is. He knows mine and he knows yours. He quotes John Calvin, who says that James denounces the rich like this because he is really looking to those of faith that they may attend to the sad ruin of the wealthy and not be envious of their prosperity. There it is. Envy. Don't you envy the rich? Bigger house? Yes, please. Better school? Yes, please. Private health care? Secure future? Nicer holidays? No overdraft charges? No mortgage? No loans? No more arguments at home over money? No more sleepless nights? No more balancing the books? A more reliable car? A few treats? Providing more for the children? Don't you envy people who never have to worry about any of these things? Well, this passage is here to say to us not to envy the unbelieving, ungodly rich. Why? Because their money talks with a different message to what they think. and They can't hear it. Look again at verse 3. It says, Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you. Money talks. Then verse 4, the wages you kept back by fraud are crying out against you. Money talks. The wealth of the wicked will stand in testimony against them when it comes to judgment. And so don't envy them. Don't emulate them in your own use of whatever money you happen to have. Don't seek to gain unjustly. Don't hoard. Don't self-indulge. Be humbly thankful for what you have. Use it wisely, both as you spend it, as you save it, as you give generously, and as you invest in what's ultimate. Don't envy them because judgment will come. Wealth is fleeting. Life will end. We even saw that tragically in the case of that billionaire and others who died in a submarine in recent days. His wealth will be of no use to him now. Now, I mention that uh, because it's so recent, I, I know nothing about the faith or character of those who were on that submarine but nonetheless it's a tragic example that death is ahead for all of us whether we're a billionaire or a pauper likely not on a submarine but as our last passage reminded us you do not know what tomorrow will bring and one day every pulpit and every land and every church will fall silent every bible will be closed for the very last time and judgment will come And so the time today is judgment is coming time. This world cannot see the reversal that's coming. But as we come into the sanctuary, as we come in and hear from God, we can see that that is the case. Verse five says, to the rich ungodly, you have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. This is their day in the sun, but one day the tables will turn. And so the Christian need not envy because God for our good gives us a window into the future, even as we suffer in the present, even as our hearts are prone to wander in the present, even in those times where we are being generous and sacrificial with our time, our talents, our money, in our self-denial and following Jesus, and we have doubts if it's really worth it. God, through this passage, wishes that the godly may be encouraged to greater patience under any oppression or hardship, As we'll see next time, verse 7, be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. I finish with a few lines from Jeremiah Burroughs, who's a saint from uh, a few years ago, more than a few years ago. He says this, learn the excellence of true riches, namely spiritual riches. Martin Luther used to say that the smallest degree of grace is worth more than heaven and earth. He professed that he would rather understand one psalm than to have all the riches of the world. That sounds ridiculous. That sounds ludicrous, doesn't it? To understand one psalm or one part of Scripture is, is worth more than having all the wealth in the world. And yet he goes on to give us an, a, a wonderful picture as to why. He says, uh, if we were taken up into heaven, the earth would seem very small to us. And on it, we think the things that we see around us are so shiny, so impressive in the here and now, the glitz and the glamour, and yet from heaven's viewpoint, they're tiny. Just like as we stand on earth and the night sky is there and the stars are there, the stars seem so small to us. Well, those things that appear insignificant to us now have great significance from heaven's viewpoint, says Burroughs. So as we close, be encouraged, you who exhibit the wallet of a humble person. Far better to have treasures in heaven than treasures on earth. As you are tempted to envy, take heart from this passage and be patient until the coming of the Lord. We're going to sing